Welcome, welcome, welcome to chapter 5. It is going to be a busy night tonight, but in all of my weeks of studying, I can say that this has been my favorite chapter so far. Uh, what I'm going to share with you tonight, I've never preached before. Uh, I've had many conversations all week long with people trying to pray it through and think it through and talk it through and study it through and... Uh, and I'm just very excited to share with you tonight. Uh, where we are going, you know how we do it. We, I give you the best I can scripturally, and then I just let you work it out. I'm not asking you to believe like I believe. I'm not asking you to think that my way is the right way, because I think we've settled this. I like to say it every video, though, in case somebody just jumps in. Uh, it doesn't just mean that my way is the right way. I realize that there's a lot of other opinions, but I'm trying to give you my opinions based on Scripture, what I think to be true, and if it needs to change in the future, I can always change it. So I, I'm trying to do that. Uh, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the recap, except to uh, go right where we left off last week with this question of chapter 4. The question of chapter 4 is why would God, and remember we looked at the living beings, the four living beings that we kind of deduced could be cherubim, but they were definitely different looking when we researched them, and then the 24 elders around the throne, and we spent a lot of time talking about that, so you can go download that uh, when it's posted and study and get it back in your heart. But for tonight, it does bear inference to why around the throne... Is God in the center on the throne, the Father? And then beside the Father is what will come in this chapter, someone called the Lamb uh, that we know to be the Son of God, Jesus. Outside that circle are the cherubim that surround the throne of God. And they cry, holy, holy, holy. And then outside that are the 24 elders that are positioned north, south, east, and west sitting on thrones around the throne of God. And so we left off with this last week. Why would an eternal God, all-powerful God, need to surround himself with cherubim to guard his glory? Because that's what they did. They guarded the glory. And ruling elders to encircle his throne. So we're going to jump into chapter 5 now. Because chapter 5 will help us answer this. And hopefully by the time I'm done tonight, you will have a clarity. And I'm going to share some things that I hope stretch your mind. And then I love to talk about it. Uh, and I'm not going to go into it. So I want you to understand as I go into it, I'm not going to go into it as emphatic. But I'm going to go into it as possible. And so I'm going to open it up rather than very emphatic drive the nail home. I'm going to open it up by showing you the blueprint and leaving the hammer and nails to you. And then letting you determine how do you want to drive that nail home. But I'm going to give it to you the way I've worked it out. So let's just run through it. Revelation 5 verses 1 and 2. This is where it starts getting interesting in my heart. First four verses and we're just going to labor on the first four verses for most of the night. And then we will conclude reading the whole chapter. So four verses then the whole chapter. And then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll. But no one in heaven or on earth 
or under the earth, could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or to look inside. So we come out of this beautiful chapter 4 of a look into heaven, a look into the living beings, the throne room, the holy, 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 going from the myriad of angels, the 24 elders sitting around the throne. Uh, and now we come into chapter 5, which we start getting a little more intimate detail of what's about to transpire for the rest of the book. Because remember what I said, and I've been saying all along, is everything God starts, He finishes. And what we are about to trans, uh, embark on, I should say, we are about to embark on the train that will finish it all. And this chapter is the best I could define it for you. This chapter is the engine of the train leading the caboose of the finishing of what God started. And to really understand, this is my opinion, to really understand the rest of this book where it even remotely makes sense in our brain, we have got to really link up to this chapter and let it pull us through. And so I'm hoping to do that tonight to, to try to you know, explain it in a way that's very clear. Here's the answer to the question. Why would God, an eternal, all-powerful God, want to surround himself with cherubim to guard his glory and 24 elders around his throne as if God needed that? But there is a reasoning. The reasoning, and this is going to define the rest of the book. It's on your worksheet. The reasoning is that the angels and the cherubim and the 24 elders serve as a testimony that rebellion will succumb to the wrath of the Lamb and righteousness will reign through the blood of the Lamb. So what we're going to be looking at for the rest of the book are these two issues, the wrath of the Lamb and the blood of the Lamb. The wrath of the Lamb is because of unrighteousness and the blood of the Lamb was to produce the righteousness. It's what God has been after all along, righteousness. It's why we read things, Christ is our righteousness. Have you been made right with God? Now in this thinking, we have, I don't have time to do this you know, for the sake of revelation, but if we go back in history of the Bible, uh, the cherubim that rebelled was Lucifer. Isaiah will say that he, and Ezekiel 28 will say that he was the guardian cherub. He was the cherub that covered. He was placed on the earth to rule and he rebelled. So I don't think it's comical that God has placed these other four living beings who in my assessment are in the same category as Lucifer who was one of these ruling living beings, uh, a guardian cherub, seraphim of type. And they're around the throne because they are a reminder that rebellion doesn't work. Now, how, how could these angels around the throne be an example that rebellion doesn't work? Because it was an angel that rebelled. Now, here's a problem that we face. The problem that we face is if an angel started this before we ever came on the scene, why could not an angel start it again in the future and we have to repeat it all over? 
So before there was an Adam and an Eve, there was a group of angels, and in, in an angel, a created being, rebellious pride rose up within. So that's the weird thought. The weird thought is, who tempted Lucifer? Because he becomes the devil. And it's easy for us to go, well, the, the devil tempts us. That's easy. Who tempts you to sin? The devil. Well, before the devil became the devil, he was a created ruling angel. He, he was uh, brilliant by God. It says there was no other like him. He was God's crowning achievement in the seraphim cherubim realm. Uh, so uh, God's perspective of him in the book of Isaiah is, this is weird, I couldn't do any better than this. So God, speaking of Lucifer, who becomes our Satan, devil, demon, kind of adversary, God's own opinion of him is, I can't do any better than that fella. If we're talking in my creation. So God creates this beautiful being, and then the question of the hour is, so who tempted him? Who, who fished him to rebel? And the best we can come up with is that pride rose within his own heart, for it says, for he said within himself, if I just ascend above the clouds, he said within himself, if I could be like the Most High and sit my throne at his throne. So that is a weird futuristic thought that in the future, this tragedy could repeat itself. If it happened before with an angel, what would keep us from being in eternity with another angel going, I'm sick of this. I want to be God. And they try the whole thing again, and off we go again. Well, chapter 4 lends into how that is stopped. It is stopped with the cherubim around the throne and the 24 elders around the throne. Why does that stop it? Let's read. Revelation 12, 11. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. So now we understand that the way the devil, Lucifer's rebellion is defeated is through testimony and blood. So that what I begin to logically deduce is that the cherubim are positioned around the throne as a reminder that the gifts and callings of God are without repentance. He's not going to judge the ones that didn't leave, but to keep the ones from rising up again against him to overthrow heaven. He surrounds those with 24 elders, and those 24 elders serve as a testimony to every human that rebellion does not work. Because we, humans, sitting on the throne, are the result of rebellion. What is the result of the rebellion? We've been redeemed and the Lamb of God overcame. This is uh, given to us in Ephesians. But God, who is rich in mercy because of His great love, wherewith He loved us even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together... With Christ, by grace you have been saved, raised me up together, and made me sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that when? That in the ages to come. In other words, you've not just been redeemed for now. Right now, you're the light of the world, you're the salt of the earth, and you represent a testimony to human beings. 
And the testimony to human beings is God forgives sin. God holds nothing against us. He's forgiven us in Jesus. Our sins have been nailed to the cross. There is hope for eternal life. But once this life of humanity is done and God is moving to another dimension in the ages to come, you and I, the church that I shared was, I felt like representative of the 24 elders, the church still holds a testimony that God through the church would show in the ages to come that's history, that's futuristic he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus so when an angel looks and says let's try it again all of the other angels will stand up and say there's nothing to be done for this sea and myriad of every tongue, tribe, language and people that we thought we could destroy and we thought we could rule them. They are now ruling and reigning and judging us because we thought we could be judged and now because of our own failure of Lucifer, these humans are now judged and they sit in testimony of the righteous grace of Jesus Christ and will serve for eternity that rebellion doesn't work and the blood of Jesus Christ brought righteousness for all. So you, your faith, your, your willingness to be in the body of Christ will serve as an eternal testimony to all the angels. Rebellion does not work. Why do you think rebellion in the, in the Christian body is so powerful today? Why do Christians struggle to rebel all the time? Because Lucifer knows if I can get the body of Christ to rebel, I ruin their testimony. And if I ruin their testimony and there is no grace given to them and there is no freedom and there is no forgiveness and there is no peace and there is no rest, then I can deceive the rest of the world to follow me in my rebellion. Because the way the world follows Lucifer is his deception is this doesn't work. You're hypocrites. You're losers. You're all just carnal. Who would want to come here and be part of you people? You're just as sick as everybody else, just as lousy as everybody else, just as broke as everybody else, as divorced as everybody else, just as addicted as everybody else. I need it to be that way because you cannot be a testimony of freedom because if you are, it proves my deceptive rebellion doesn't work. And then we just sit around here and play church games. I don't like you and I don't like you and I don't like you. And we want to know why we're so weak and anemic and why hasn't revival come? Why would revival want to come to a bunch of dead people? Why would God want to send an influx of sinners into a sick home? He's got to heal us first. I know, Pentecostal preaching, forgive me, sorry. Here's the thought, though. The living beings around the throne... It's a sign that rebellion will suffer the wrath of the Lamb. So rebellion suffers wrath. This is where we're going in the book of Revelation. The elders are around the throne are a sign that rebellion was attempted and failed because of the blood. So two things we're going to begin to see play out through the rest of the book that is indescribably... Uh, no way we could deny it, I should say. I guess that would be better. There's no way to deny it that what we're about to bump into is the wrath of the Lamb and the righteousness of the Lamb 
playing out to the redemption of the Lamb in the very last chapter of the book. There is no way to get to the redemption without talking about the wrath and the righteousness. And it's going to play itself out. It's going to play itself out this way, and this is the thought. One thing we can say about God from Lucifer's downfall on is rebellion deserves wrath. There's no way we can read the Bible and escape that. So when people love to argue God, okay, so let's take somebody arguing God. If he's such a good God, why does he kill people in the Old Testament, man? Why does he let little babies die in the Old Testament? Why did he kill all those people and the walls of Jericho came tumbling down, man? There's probably good people there, right? That kind of God, kind of like he's psycho and just loves murdering people. He's a murdering God in the Old Testament. The the issue with that thinking is you're coming from it from a humanistic way of thinking that we're all good. This is terrible English. You ain't (laughs) at all. There's no one good. Not even one. Show me the one. This is what Revelation 5 is going to do. There's no one worthy. On earth, in the earth, or under the earth, nobody's worthy. And we have this little philosophical, some of us are sort of good. No. So when we go, why why is God just nuking everybody? Because rebellion deserves wrath. Every time somebody dies in the Old Testament, they got the promise of God. If you sin, you die. But I didn't sin. Oh, I know it's because your shallow humanity thinks it's all about you. You came from parents that sinned and they sinned and they birthed you by their own image. So thank them for the image of the death you've been brought into. You deserve to die. So now when you hear words like mercy, you need to just shout to the top of your lungs. I deserve to die, but he didn't kill me. He loved me. But I deserve the worst of the worst of the worst. Not this egotistical American Christianity that I I somehow deserve it. You don't. (laughs) You don't deserve a thing. You can't tithe your way into it, serve your way into it, pray your way. You deserve yada squat. Nothing. You deserve nothing but to die. To burn forever, lake of fire, totally hopeless, the epistles will say, without God, no way to find life, and you're ticked at him. It's your problem. He didn't even have to remedy it. You created it. And his mercy is going to remedy it. So as we're going through the book of Revelation here, don't think that the devil's just, oh man, Revelation, the devil's killing people. It's not, Revelation is not about the devil killing people. He's been killing people. Revelation is, fellas, y'all are about to get what's coming. You have rejected me. You've turned your back on me. And you turned your back on the lamb. So you're going to get what's coming. My wrath is going to be poured out. Now here's here's the options. (laughs) Here's the options God gives you. You either get the lamb on the cross... Your choice. Or you get the lamb with the scroll. 
Either way, you don't get away from the lamb. If you choose the lamb on the cross, then all the wrath of God has been placed upon him. And you will escape that wrath, for Thessalonians says it's not now been appointed to you to be under his wrath because the wrath of the lamb was taken to you on the cross. And if you believe, wrath is removed from you. Everything that was ever against you, Francine, nailed to the cross. Everything ever opposed to you, Sam, nailed to the cross. I hold nothing against you, totally forgiven as far as the east is from the west, cast into the sea to never be remembered no more. I don't even know what you did with your past, Diane, because I totally and completely forgave you and hold nothing against you. And by the way, I so see that I call you born again. And yet the devil's like, no, Diane, he doesn't. You're still guilty, Diane. You better prove to him he doesn't really love you. If he really loved you, oh, you're just a failure, Diane. You just consistently trip up, Diane. God doesn't really love you. And then Diane gets this guilt trip going, I just got to earn the love of God. No! You don't earn a thing. He just loves you, Sam. He doesn't love you because you first loved him. He loved you when you didn't even love him. You weren't even looking for him. And your own testimony is I was living my life. And he said, but I love you and I hunted you down. I found you and I captured your heart with my goodness. And now you're my kid. Welcome to my family. Right? <laughs> and then there's this weird thing like some of us just think we now deserve it. Because I am pretty good now. I do tithe now and I do serve now. And I'm actually thinking about going to seminary and becoming a pastor. I deserve, you don't ever deserve it. <laughs> or the second, which is what we're going to bump into in Revelation 5. This is weird. Up until this point, we've been introduced to the lamb on the cross. Does anybody hold anything against you? Then neither do I. Go and sin no more. But in Revelation 5, because God has to punish wrath, the humans that have rejected the lamb on the cross will now be introduced to the lamb holding the scroll. <laughs> I don't mean this facetious or to downplay it. That gets ugly. I will say this about the lamb on the cross too. It was ugly there. It just depends on, do you want the ugliness to be put on him or the ugliness to be put on you? Because Isaiah tells me that the lamb on the cross was beaten so badly they could not recognize him. We kind of go, oh, it's Jim Caviezel. He still looks the same, but man, did oh man, he really did a great job with that makeup. But according to Isaiah, he was beaten beyond recognition, meaning his own mother could not even tell who he was. Could you imagine your child being beaten so bad that you could be this far from him and couldn't even recognize him? The only reason you know it could be him is because they put the name above on the cross. The only reason you may know it's him is because they've been jeering at him and spitting on him and calling him names. And you, you may know him because you watch them beat him, but you don't recognize him because you, you, his visage. You, you understand what I'm saying? Well, if I reject that, then what happens is that punishment put on him because all rebellion has to be punished the rebellion will now be turned to the lamb with the scroll. And it really starts getting dark and ugly now. Because Revelation chapter 6 begins the lamb 
that owns the scroll. And that's probably why most of us are here because I want to know the ugly parts of Revelation. And most of that is selfish because I really just want you to tell me, am I going to go through it? I would simply leave you with this thought. Is it logical to believe that the one who chooses the salvation of the lamb on the cross will also be subject to the wrath of the lamb with the scroll? So that's my logical question. If the lamb on the cross removed the wrath of God, then does it stand to reason that if I, Mark, choose to believe the lamb on the cross, that I will still have to suffer the wrath of the lamb on the scroll? My logical answer is no, because a house divided against itself cannot stand. And if I, a believer, choose the lamb on the cross as my sacrifice only to suffer the punishment of the lamb with the scroll, and I'm now the body of God, then God would be opposed against himself that I would be suffering this way when I should have already suffered with him on the cross. And to me, a house divided can't stand. So for those pre-rapture or rapture people, this is a great thing that I would really fight for the rapture. Because once you believe the lamb on the cross, you'll be brought unto him to overcome the lamb with the scroll. For those of you that are post-trib and want to hang out here, which I believe as we get into it, you'll see is impossible. Mid-trib to me feels... If, I'll just say this. If I miss pre-trib, I'm okay if I do. I really believe mid-trib is probably the most next practical way. I don't see any way we could make it post-trib, but maybe we will. And if, and if we do, I hope to make it. I'm still going pre-trib. Fingers crossed, please, Lord. Amen. <laughs> I'm just throwing it out there to you. I'm not like I'm right. Like the rapture's coming because Mark said so. I just study and believe that's true. But if it's not, I'm cool. He's still the lamb on the cross for me. But does it seem logical to you that, I mean, just logic to me says, I just got to pick a lamb here. And if I pick the lamb on the cross, I just don't know how I could go through this divisiveness because the lamb with the scroll is punishment for rebellion. So even if, I, watch, even if I'm left here, I still believe I'll be hidden away somewhere, although I don't know how that works because I'll talk about that in the weeks to come. Scripture, back to Revelation 5. Is everybody good with that? So that was my introduction <laughs> to this lamb with the scroll. Because that's what we're being introduced to. Revelation 4 is kind of romantic. Oh, heaven, angels, elders. Revelation 5, romance kind of leaves. Because now I'm introduced for the first time since John 1, 2, and 3 where Jesus is talking to John in this white regalia with white hair and bronze feet. And he's kind of the judge. Now I'm introduced to him. The wrath of the Lamb. And that is a powerful, powerful thought. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice. Here comes that, what I've been talking about. Who's worthy? Who's worthy to do what? Oh, gosh, yeah. This, I, I, I don't know, I'll probably call my mom 400 times this week. I just got to help a brother. Help me, Mama. Wikipedia is not helping me. 
Google's not helping me. I'm even asking the Holy Ghost, and he's not helping me, Mama. Help me, Mama. You know when the Holy Ghost's not helping you, call Mama, right? Just Mama. <laughs> mama didn't even help me. I'm like, come on, Mama. <laughs> so what I'm going to share with you now is what I wholeheartedly have prayed over. I wholeheartedly have considered it. I wholeheartedly believe I could be wrong. I'm good with that. So I'm not teaching it as doctrine to go home and sell your soul on it. I'm teaching it as a thought to, that seems practical scripturally to help you understand this working of the wrath of the Lamb. All right, so that's kind of my premise of where we ought to go. Let's backtrack. This is in your later notes, but you remember we spent a whole teaching on the number seven. This is a reminder of that lesson. I saw a scroll sealed with seven seals. This was in a worksheet weeks back, but this is the seven, this is what we deduce from studying and researching the number seven. It means a blessed rest, sanctified protection from vengeance, comfort from the curse, establishment of a covenant, joining in marriage, a keeping with life, and a sweet smelling aroma. So anytime I see the number seven, you remember when we talked about it, we said it has to do with the finishing. And on day seven, he finished his work and he rested. So when I see seven seals, not just a scroll, but a scroll with seven seals, I need to do my research, my biblical studies, which we did prior to this. And in that, I can conclude this. Those seven seals must represent a finishing of something. In other words, whatever the Father is holding in his hand with seven seals... Because he began something, this must be the finishing of it because the number seven represents finishing. Just like there were seven churches, we're going to finish the church age. There's seven seals on a scroll. So whatever the scroll is about, there's going to be a finishing of it. All right? So that's what we talked about. Let's just, this is just a quick jip for you. Just to kind of, so we know what we're talking about. We don't think we're talking about a seal over at, uh, you know, the water park. What does the word sealed mean? You can just write this down. It's real simple. Catasfragio. And I, I, I'm, dear God, that's terrible. But that's what it is. Catasfragizo. Catasfragizo. I practice it all afternoon. I still can't do it. But it's a Greek word that means to cover with a seal or to close up with a seal. Uh, we, we may use it as like tape. Put a piece of tape on it, seal it, glue, just glue the top down. Uh, Velcro, Velcro, Velcro it shut, close it up. Put a lock on it, lock it. Uh, so when, when we see there's seven seals, we can deduce this, that there's, there's a finishing coming to something God has covered up for us. It's kind of a mystery. We don't really know. We just know it's a scroll. It's got writing on the front side, writing on the back side. That's pretty Jewish in nature. It was, it was typical normal. So I'd like to know, well, what is the scroll and what's closed up and what can I look for, for to come out of it? And I, I'll tell you again, I have literally spent hours uh, and, and uh, God, 18 gallons of Chick-fil-A diet lemonade <laughs> trying to work this out. And so again, I'm giving you a precursor to try to be as nice as I can be to say, I don't know if I'm right, but I'm, I'm just going to throw it to you and you can chew the meat and spit out the bones. 
Let's do what I've been teaching you to do when we don't know what something is. Let's backtrack. Let's go back through Scripture and see if we can define it better than just a Greek word. So, as I've always believed, Genesis is the seed of everything. So, I always start in Genesis and work my way north. Genesis 38, 18 gives us a, a first real example. It, it is... Uh, it's a long story, so I would just encourage you to go home and read it, and this verse will be more meaningful to you. But in the long story, uh, he basically is going to, Judah is basically going to go out and hook up with a hooker. And uh, that just doesn't really please God too much in the story, but when he hooks up with the hooker, she kind of perceives, oh, I, I, I kind of know who this is here, I know what's going on, and, uh, you know, he's going to, you know, he's just, just put it this way, he's just sleeping with the wrong person. So, um, so he sleeps with her, and then this is what she says. What kind of guarantee do you want, he replied, because she wanted a guarantee. Hey, you, you've slept with me, and I need you to get me a guarantee that you'll come back kind of thing. It's a long story. You read it. She answered, leave me your identification seal and its cord and walking stick you are carrying. So Judah gave them to her. Then he had intercourse with her, and she became pregnant. Now notice before he became intimate with her, he gave her the seal. The seal was a guarantee of identification. Of, I am who I say I am. So that's the first introduction we get about a seal. It has to do with a guarantee of identification. And weird here, it's connected in an intimate, in an intimate act, a sexual act. And I believe as we go through this that this seal, that is, this scroll sealed seven times is a guarantee of an identification of God, God's identification of something. This seal has some kind of hidden identity in here that only God himself knows. It's sealed up and it's a guarantee of something. And, and whatever the guarantee is, it's linked up to something intimate. This isn't just some random thing. It's an intimate. This is what I'm speculating all week. It's, it must be something intimate. It must be a guarantee of some type of intimacy, a guarantee of some type of identification. And I begin to write it out. It's a guarantee of some type of identification that leads to intimacy with who God says he is. I wrote all that out. I came to the next verse. Daniel 6. Daniel 6 is in relationship to, uh, for those of us that, you know, vacation Bible school, Daniel in the lion's den. Daniel in the lion's den, he's taken advantage of, they boot him out, he's caught praying, they throw him in the lion's den, the king's really upset, I can't believe i got to kill my own friend here and throw him in the lion's den, but I have to keep my word and I have to keep my honor, so you're right. We did issue a decree that if you don't pray to me, you go to the lion's den. He throws Daniel in the lion's den. The king's officials are like, dude, if you don't do something, Daniel's going to get out. Excuse me, Daniel's going to get out. That was my diet lemonade. Daniel's going to get out, <laughs> and, uh, and then he won't die. His friends will come escape him. He'll be rescued in the middle of the night. And so the king says, well, let's do something about it. And, and the king says this, go make sure that the stone is secure and, and that can't happen. In short, I threw Daniel in the lion's den, go down there, make sure he can't get out. Nobody can rescue him. Nobody can help him. And this is Daniel 6, 17. 
And then a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signets of his lords that the purpose concerning Daniel, and now here we go, might not be changed. One version says cannot be rescued. So now what I'm going to learn about a seal is not only an identification marker that guarantees something connected to the identity of something and the intimacy of something, it is also a seal of authority that says the purpose of the very thing that is here can never change. If you want to know how powerful this is, the same thing happened in Matthew 27. If you don't do something, the disciples will come and steal the body of Jesus. Hey, then go and make the tomb secure, sealing the stone. In other words, the typical way it would work for those that go way back in history is they would take wax. The wax would be poured onto something and then the signet ring of the king would be pressed into the wax and that wax seal, uh, you know, back in the olden days, they would do that with letters. They would drip wax onto the letter and then they would seal it with a mark. And that's literally what it meant, that the ring of the king would be pressed into the wax or whatever it was, pressed into it, and then there would be the signet seal of the ring of the king on the wax that sealed shut. And if the wax was broken or the seal was broken, then it was invalid. So the only way it was valid is it had to have a seal that not be broken. You know that's true today because if you went to go get milk and you open it up and the seal was broken, you would probably put it back. Like, yeah, man, somebody's tampered with the milk. Well, the same thing is here. If the seal is broken, somebody's tampered with it. So now here's what we can know. This scroll that the Father is holding is a guarantee of his identification of something that is a sign of intimacy with him that also secures that the purpose of the very scroll and what is written on it might not be changed by anyone for the purpose is sure and the purpose is secure. And here's what we do know based on Revelation 5. None of the seals have been broken, so it's still valid and true. So whatever it is is valid, whatever it is is true, whatever it is is guaranteed, whatever it is is secure, whatever it is is purposeful, whatever it is is will not be changed. So let's define it. Here they are. I rolled that out for you, but I wrote them down if you want to write them down. And in just a minute, I'll make it a little clearer. The seals defined serves as a guarantee, an identification of ownership, a statement of unchanging purpose, and a security of certainty. So that's what I got just studying those two passages of scriptures, trying to understand what it was. Here's the seven seals defined. So I put all that together in a statement for you. It is a long statement because I'm a talker. So I wrote out what I was thinking. You know, I put all the words out there in the atmosphere, and then I tried to put it into an English sentence of this scroll that is being held onto and why it could be significant. And this is what I wrote. It's a guarantee of certainty that God, the owner of all creation, has an unchanging purpose of security to bring about, and here come the seven, a blessed rest, a protection from vengeance, which is what's coming in Revelation, a comfort from the curse, which is what's coming in Revelation, 
an establish of the covenant, which is the end of Revelation, and a joining to himself in marriage, which is the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation, to his bride, and the end result being the aroma of life in Revelation that will penetrate the entire earth. So when we see this scroll and we grab a hold of this scroll with seven seals, we can determine that the Father that is holding it is telling us that inside this scroll is a guarantee of something that's unchangeable, written by me for the purpose of intimacy with me and my purposes to finish a work, to deliver from the curse, to bring about a blessed rest, to establish my covenant, to marry myself to my people, to bring about peace upon the earth. So that's what we're looking at. Let's go back to Revelation 5. Now it says, And I saw in the right hand of him, we're not going to talk about the seven seals, but a scroll. We've talked about the seven seals, and it has writing on both sides of it. And who is worthy to break the seals? There's the scripture again. Who's worthy to break it? In other words, they're not been broken. Nothing, watch now. Nothing about this covenant has been changed. Is everybody good with that? Whatever it is. Okay, so this scroll was sealed seals and none of them are broken. What we can deduce logically is nothing about this agreement has changed from the time it was written. It's unchangeable. It will only be valid when the scroll begins to break open. That's the next chapter. We begin to unveil it. So here's the question. What sealed document would the Father God be holding in His hand that He in turn would pass off to the Son of God to open? So that's our question in this chapter. What sealed document would the Father God be holding in His hand that He in turn would pass off to the Son of God to open? Now, the next slide, uh, I think it's on your worksheet. If it's not on your worksheet, I think I took it off for the sake of space, but I'll put it up there. Um, these are the options we have based on what many scholars teach and people think. The highest priority that people think that teach Revelation is that the Father's holding the title deed to the earth, meaning God owns the earth, and he's going to open it up and go, yay, it's mine, see, here's the document. Read the document. I told you I owned it. I have no problem with that. Lots of people believe it. I'll tell you why I don't think it is that in a minute, but there's tons of people that believe that, and I'm good if you do. All right. So one thought is God's holding a scroll, and that scroll is, it basically says, I, the Father Creator, am the sole possessor of this planet and it's mine and I'm going to open these seals and prove it to all you humans. My only issue with that is is that he would have had to make that covenant to Adam because he gave the earth to Adam to rule and reign. So if he wrote that document and sealed it and handed it off to Adam as a guarantee between me and you and Adam blew it and gave it to the devil who's now the God of this earth that means the devil got the document and I just don't believe if the devil got the document that he wouldn't have broke the seals to say, I own it now. And if he does have the document, there is something weird because it's starting to change ownership and what I read is whatever's written is unchangeable. 
So if it's unchangeable in nature, but it just changed ownership because it went from the father to Adam, that's a change of ownership, but they could jointly share it, so it's still one if they're one. But the moment Adam sold out and the devil became the God of the world and got the title deed to the earth, and we know that's true because Matthew 3 says, Matthew 4 says, if you'll bow down and worship me, I will give you what? All the kingdoms of the what? The world. So that would tell me if this document is the title deed and it's unchangeable in its purpose, how could the devil offer it to Jesus as his own if it really wasn't his own? And Jesus had to redeem it back anyway, so I kind of cancel that out. It's good and plausible, but it seems to have a lot of change going on. And basically what I study about scrolls that are sealed, whatever's inside is unchangeable and can't change. So if it is about ownership, it seems to me ownership changed hands a whole lot, even though God got it back. So it'd be kind of like, I own it, you take it. Oh, I don't want it, devil, you take it. Oh, I'll take it, offer it to Jesus. Nope, you got to bow down to me. Oh, no, he died, he took it back. Oh, Jesus goes to heaven, here, God, it's yours again. And I'm just like, ah, this doesn't feel good to me. I'm not saying it's not true, but it just doesn't resonate in my belly, man. The next one is, could it be the Old Testament law? I'm inclined to believe this could be true. Because Jesus says, in, or God says in Deuteronomy 28, if you don't obey me, these curses will come on you. And if you don't keep what I've written to you, you're in rebellion, and I'm going to hold you accountable to what I wrote. We know that's true with the Ten Commandments. If you don't do what I say, you'll suffer greatly. Well, if, if the Jews have rejected him, and the majority of the rest of the Revelation is about the Jew then this document could be the Old Testament sealed up curse and that as it's unrolled, the curse begins to come upon the earth because they've rejected him. I'm not opposed to that either. It is a thought and I've thought it out, but I didn't like it, so I'm throwing it up there to you and you can chew the meat and spit the bones out and do it. Uh, now, what, what I'm going to share with you, don't leave the church over it. Just enjoy it and take me to eat. And then if I'm wrong, you just say, dude, you're totally wrong, and I'll go, good, thank you. And I can repent later. I, I'm not teaching this as doctrine. I'm teaching it as thought. Here's what I think it is. I think it's the book of life. And I want to show you why I think that. Why I think this scroll contains the names of every person from the foundation of the earth written upon it that the Father himself holds to himself as a sign of intimacy of who belongs to me, as a sign of ownership that from the foundation of the world, I've written the names. Here's what's weird. Your name was written in the book of life before the world began. That's a whole other topic. There, that means nobody's going to take God by surprise. Before Mark Evans ever got on this planet, before the planet was ever made, there, I believe there was a scroll, we call it books, but a scroll, scribed in heaven. Charles Mark Evans is my child. And we haven't even created the earth yet. Before the foundations of the earth, I got my name written in the Lamb's Book of Life. My opinion, this is my opinion, every human that has ever graced the planet has been written in the Book of Life. Every human around. 
And I believe God has written the names of every human that will ever grace the planet. And when we get to the last human, God says, now it's time to finish this thing. This is why it's so powerful that Jesus says, if you don't repent, what will I do with your name? I will erase it. If you don't serve me and you don't repent, I will erase your name out of the book of life. Here's little Mark Evans. Oh, there's Mark Evans. He's in the book of life. Yeah, he's coming April 23rd, 1965. He's going to be a good little kid. Uh, Yeah, but he's not going to choose me. But his name's still there because there's hope for him. But he's not going to pick you. Oh, I know he won't pick me, but I want him to know I picked him. I don't ever want to stand in front of me and act like I didn't know him. But when he stands in front of me and rejects me and I open this scroll one final time, this is the end of Revelation, I will look in that book and he will, people will stand before me, the dead, and I will go, uh, yeah, you're not there, you've been erased. Because you didn't choose the blood of the lamb, you got the scroll of the lamb, and the lamb that held the scroll has erased your name. That's just mind-blowing. All right? I want to run through why I think this so you just don't think I'm pulling rabbits out of my hat. Matthew 4.8, I spoke a little bit about this, but I want to give you scripture, not just opinion. And the devil took him up to exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said, all these things I'll give you. So again, I think if this was the title deed of the earth, how come the devil has it if the purpose is unchangeable and the purpose really is God's? How could the devil offer me something that's already God's? So I I scratch off the first one. Hebrews 4. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest remains, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. So here's what I can deduce by this. If the Old Testament law could have bring people rest, we could say that this was the law because the end result of Revelation is blessed rest. But the law could not bring people rest. It could only generate sin. It could only stir it up. It could not really bring you rest. Only Jesus Christ could be the person to truly bring you rest. So I don't believe this is just the law that God is holding. Whatever God is holding is designed to finish a work that will bring me rest. I'm going to tell you what that is in a minute. Matthew 7, 19. I mean, sorry, Hebrews 7, 19. For the law made what? Nothing perfect. This is Hebrew. This is uh, Revelation 5. Who's worthy? Who's worthy? Nobody's worthy. The law makes nothing perfect. So I I would really just have a hard time that he's holding the curse of the law in his hand and pass it off to Jesus, something that's not going to make him perfect because Jesus has already finished the law on the cross. Why would the Father give him the curse of the law if the curse of the law has already been finished on the cross? So I kind of crossed that one out too. So it really only leaves me all week long. What is it? What is it? What is it? What is? Watch now. Just dream with me in an object lesson because I couldn't create a movie on it. What could the Father be holding so dear that is unchangeable, that is sealed as a finished work guaranteeing security, holding it to Himself as a form of intimacy, and that the only one worthy to even take it out of His hand and crack the seal is the Lamb of God? What is so powerful, watch, 
that he only can hand it to the lamb. If it's the title deed of the earth, he handed that to Adam. It's yours, man. Rule, reign, and dominate. No. If it's the law, he handed that to Moses. Write it down, baby. No. Obviously, this can't... I'm not saying can't. Obviously, I don't feel like it's the title deed of the earth because he handed it to Adam. I don't believe it's the title deed to the law because he handed that to Moses. Whatever this is, it's only worthy to be given to the Lamb of God Almighty. I feel preachy tonight. I don't know why. <laughs> Hebrews 6, 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham because he could swear by no one greater, grab a hold of this one, he swore to himself. Why do I think it can't... Why do I think it's not the title deed of the earth? Because with that, it was a covenant with Adam. Why do I think it can't be the law? Because with that, it was a covenant with, no, with Moses and the Israelites. But this is so blooming powerful, it's just a covenant with himself. I can't trust you humans. I don't trust you humans. And every time I did, you blew it. So I'm going to come down and I'm just going to make a pact with my own self. That is a beautiful God. That is a God that said, I made a covenant with you. You blew it and went rebellious. I gave you a law to know me. You blew it and went rebellious. So I just decided, why don't I just make a covenant with me? I'll just swear it to myself. I'll make a covenant to myself, for myself. And I'll just make that promise to Abraham about myself. In other words, here's what I know. I can trust me. That's a powerful God. You can count on me. So this passing off of one thing to another is obviously so powerfully, oh gosh, um, so holy to God that he only could trust it to the Lamb. The Lamb is the only one worthy to crack the seal. The Lamb is the only, watch, the Lamb is the only one worthy because once the seal breaks and it begins to open up, the purpose unfolds. The unchangingness of the thing unfolds. We begin to know the secrets that unfold. The mind of God begins to unfold. And then he says this, Psalm 69, 28. Erase their names from the book of life and don't let them be counted among the righteous. That is just profound. That I could be erased out of it. Well, who could erase my name? You can't erase my name. An angel can't erase my name. Who erases my name? Jesus. How could Jesus erase my name? Because he, watch, he now has ownership of the names that have been given to him from the foundation of the earth. Now watch, just play it out. Not saying it's right, but it's a good expanding your head. The Father from the foundation of the earth has written the name of every human that would ever come on the planet and He has held it to Himself. He has sealed it as unchangeable purposes. 
It is his intimate character conviction of ownership of every human that would ever come on the planet. He knows you. Before you were formed in your mother's womb, he knows you. He knows what your parents will call you before you even get here. From the foundation of the earth, he's known you. He fashioned you in the inmost parts. And he wrote all that down before you ever even got on the planet. And he holds it to himself dear. And he so wants you to know him that he tried to create you to know him in humans. But you humans blew it. He so wanted you to know him that he gave you the law so you could come to him and know that. But you blew that. So God in his beauty just says, I've tried it with law. I've tried it with giving them a deed to the earth. And they blew it every time. I tell you what I'm going to do. I'm just going to come down. I'm just going to redeem him myself. And I'm just going to come because I, I don't watch. I don't want to erase any name. I don't want any of you to be lost. I don't want one person on the planet to be lost. And I know you're coming. And you're not even here yet. But I so love you. I don't want you lost. So I've got to come down to do something so that the names in this book will never be changed. What could I do? What could I do so that these names could not be changed? And I raise them. I must make them righteous. Let me come down and make them righteous. So he came down in the flesh. He made you righteous. And now Revelation 5, me, my, my opinion, is now the Father is passing the names off to the Son of God. My child, they're yours. Jesus, for I will not lose one person that the Father has got in His hand. Come on. Do y'all remember Jesus saying that? Not one person in His hand will be lost. Not on my account, baby, because I'm going to redeem you all. If any of you are lost, you got yourself a race. It wasn't our fault. We wrote your name in it. We loved you. We knew you. We made provision for you. None of you will be lost. The only way you're going to be lost is to reject me. And then if you reject me, I'm obligated to erase your name out of it. But don't blame it on me. You'll have no excuse. And so the father, in my opinion again, the father passes it off. Son, you are worthy. You are, and this is, we're going to read the rest of the chapter. You are worthy to take the scroll and open the seals. And I believe as he begins to take off one, the curses come. Two, the curses come. Why? Because rebellion deserves the curse. Three, the curse. Four, the curse. Five, it begins to unflow with wrath. But once it's opened and all seven seals have been broken, the next thing I could find that had anything to do with writing was we find ourselves with books and the book of life opened up. And I suddenly felt like, what if this scroll is the opening of the book of life to bring us all to an end so we may have life? Because the final conclusion of Revelation is the book of life. It's been sealed, watch, my opinion, it's been sealed from the foundation of the earth. And in the last chapters of Revelation, God's going to start opening it. Watch this verse, it gets better. Psalm 139, 16, You saw me before I was born, every day of my life was recorded in your book. Do you know right now, Garth Yarnell, God has written every day of your life. Every day. Nothing you will do shall take him by surprise. 
He knows the day you're born and the day you die. This is why Jesus says you want to have a good life. Pray this prayer. Lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. Philippians 4.3 And I ask you, my true partner, to help these two women, for they worked hard with me in telling others the good news. They worked along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are written in the book of life. Obviously, Paul assumed that these workers were written in the book of life from the foundation of the earth. He didn't say they were erased. He said they were written. We kind of teach people this theologically. I'm not saying it's wrong. It's okay. It's the same outcome. But we typically teach people, you need to get saved so God can write your name down in the book. Like you're just nothing until you ask him to forgive you and then he'll write your name down. Go, Oh, now I know who you are. I'm not opposed to that. You still get your name in. But it seems like much more of a gracious father that while I'm in my wretched sin, bar hopping, shacking up, doing me and me only, God's like, I already know him. I got his name written down. I love him that much. Would somebody please go out there to that bar and tell that boy I love him and hold nothing against him and have totally forgiven him and have redeemed him from the foundation of the earth to the point that I want him to be born again and know me like he's never known before because I hold nothing against him. (laughs) That makes preaching a lot better. Hey, why don't you come and meet the man that wrote down every day of your life and called you by name before you ever got here? I'd like to introduce you to him. His name is God. (laughs) That's more mind-blowing than did you come to the altar and confess Come meet the man that knew you before you were even born. He wrote down every day of your life. And oh, let me ask you a question. If you reject him, would you want him to erase it? That really is evangelism now. (laughs) Wait a minute. You're telling me he's going to erase Like he already knows me, but he might erase it? Yeah, I'm just letting you know that. Uh, That brings a whole much better to evangelism. (laughs) Makes me glad he picked me. Uh, Revelation 3, 5. All who are victorious will be clothed in white. It's Jesus talking. And I will never erase their names from the book of life. But I will announce before my Father and His angels, they are mine. Can you imagine that day? Ladies and gentlemen, coming into the room, Heavenly Father, Chris Redman. Yeah, Chris! Ladies and gentlemen, coming into the room, I introduce you to my Heavenly Father, Mr. Sam Hilton. Yeah! Sam made it! Yeah! Can you imagine? This is what he says he's going to do. I'm going to introduce you and announce your name before my Father. Anybody watch Downton Abbey? The Count, the Dowager Countess. And I told Robin, I said, that'd just be cool to live in that time. Every time I walk in a room, ladies and gentlemen, Reverend Charles Evans. I don't even get hello when I get in the house. Clean your mess up. (laughs) Does that not make you appreciate Jesus? You're going to stand in eternity and you're going to have an announcement over the loudspeakers of heaven. He's mine. I own him. He's my child. I'm not ashamed of him. I'm not ashamed of her. Oh man, that's good. It gets better. Buckle up. Revelation 13, 8, and all the people who belong to this world and worship the beast, they are the ones whose names are not written in the book of life. I put it in red that belong to who? I believe that Revelation 5 
is the passing of the book of life written before the foundations of the earth, owned by the Father, handed off to the Son who earned it through being a death sacrifice, blood sacrifice. The Father stepped back and said, Son, you now own that book. Judge as you will. And Jesus says, it won't just be me that judges you, but the word of my Father. We take that to mean the Bible. I don't know if what Jesus wasn't referring to this being the word of the Father. For he wrote down every name and everything you've ever done. And the word of the Father will be handed off and says, now you get to judge by that. And the Son takes the scroll, the Lamb of God. It now belongs to the Lamb. This scripture, Revelation 20, 12. I saw the dead, both small and great, standing before God's throne. And the books were what? Yeah, this is kind of the first time we ever get the book of life being opened. But now it's opened. And I think, and I even wrote, including the book of life. Like, obviously, whoever's writing this... The book of life had been closed up until this point, but obviously now I want to include it as one of them that's been opened. And I go back to Revelation 5, who is worthy to open the seals. And now the book of life is open. And what document would only the Father give off to the Son as a trustworthy document that was unchangeable but the book of life? Now here's the conclusion of the matter. And I'll let you figure it out. If you believe that, great. If you don't, great. It's not like I hang my hat on that one. But here would be the thought. If this holds true, I feel like it does scripturally. I've tried to back it up scripturally. If this holds true, then the Father who's been around the throne with the names of every human here the angels created to worship him and they rebel and he's still holding the names. So he creates the name in the book that was the first name, Adam. So he looks, he knows the names. He goes, let's just start with number one, Adam. And he creates Adam and Lucifer understands what's going on because he's the brilliant cherub. His goal is to rob every person from being in this book. You will be erased. I will erase everybody out of that book because they'll never believe in you, ever. And we come to Revelation and the Father passes this off to Jesus and here's the conclusion. The Heavenly Father hands the scroll of the book of life to the rightful owner, Jesus Christ, the righteous one who begins to open its contents by removing the seven seals, each representing the finishing of God's wrath that will lead to the completion of God's kingdom rest. Meaning, before we ever get the book opened, you cannot escape the wrath of God. The only way is you must believe in the lamb on the cross or the lamb with the scroll. Either way, you're going to get wrath. For those of you that come to the Lamb on the cross, your names will stay written. To those that reject the Lamb with the scroll, your names will be erased. 
Now, if you wouldn't mind, I'm going to end right here. I'm a little long, I'm sorry, but Revelation 5. Turn there, if you will. I would love your eyes to see it. So if you have a Bible, I would love you just to look at it. And with everything I've taught you tonight, I would love you to get a picture of our Heavenly Father right now in heaven, sitting on a throne with four living beings around the throne, 24 elders seated, and there's about to come an exchange. There's about to be a transitional, pivotal moment in heaven as we begin to embark on the rest of Revelation. I'm just going to read the scripture. I'll say amen and we'll be finished. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on a throne a scroll written inside and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice who is worthy to open the scroll and loose its seals. And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders <laughs> said to me, Don't weep. Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. The root of David has prevailed to open the scroll and loose its seven seals. So I looked and behold, in the middle of the throne, the four living creatures in the middle of the elders stood a lamb. Though he had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and he took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll. To open its seals, for you were slain and you've redeemed to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard a voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders. The number of them was ten thousand times ten thousands and thousands of thousands. Ah, <laughs> They all said with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth as such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard them saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. And then the four living creatures said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshiped him who lives forever and ever. Come on, somebody. Give God a shout. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Come on, Jesus. Glory to God. Glory to God. Hallelujah be to God. He's worthy. 
He's worthy. Come on, just thank him. He's worthy. He's worthy. He's forgiven you. He's redeemed you. He bought you. He owns you. You are his. He holds nothing against you. You've been washed. You've been made white as snow. You are his children. You are his bride. You are his people. You are his body. Thank you, God. Glory, glory, glory. Now, here's a thought for those of you who just want to go study more. I, I love it where it says, and, and then every creature in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. That has to include living people and dead people. That's everybody. That's why I think this is the book of life because it's been handed off and everybody's like, oh, here we go. Everybody begins to just go, man, he's got all the glory. So, Father, thank you so much that in, in the craziest of ways, if we've been arrogant humans, like we deserve this thing, and it was our idea, forgive us. And if we're so prideful that we don't say yes to you, forgive us. You are our only hope. You are our only way. You are everything. And I pray, God, out of our believing that our names will never be erased from this book. And I pray when the seals are opened and you begin to reveal the finality of your judgment, that, God, we've been counted righteous because of Jesus Christ. And I give you thanks for it in Jesus' name. And you shout amen. Thank you so much for joining us on the Believer's Church YouTube channel. If you would like more information about Believer's Church, you can visit mybelieverschurch.com. If there is anything that you need prayer for, please email us at amen at mybelieverschurch.com. Be sure to check back next week for a brand new message.